Hey, today we want to get started in a whole new series. This one is called Hall of Faith. We just got done looking at the Christmas account through each of the lenses of the different Gospels in his story. But today, I Pastor Bobby asked me to, to intro this series while he's out, and uh, I'm going a little bit off of what uh, he asked me to do. So, you know, hopefully he's not on the live stream today. But hey, if you're with us on the live stream, welcome. So good to see you. Um, Hall of Faith, I want you guys just in your mind to think about who your heroes are. Who are your personal heroes? Not just necessarily of the faith, and maybe not even necessarily like a, an Avengers kind of thing, not a superhero, but who are your heroes? Like Who would line your, your personal Hall of Fame? A couple days ago, I was talking with uh, Samson, and he asked me, okay, so if you could have dinner with any three people in the world, who would it be? So I want you to think about that. Who, who would you invite to just a dinner? Who would be the people, fictional or not, any point in history that you'd want to spend time with and learn from? One person from history that really none of you know, but I think it's important that you do know him. He has an incredible story. His name is Pio Gilberto Villaverde. Pio was the owner of a successful tobacco company in Cuba. He was married to his wife, Rosa Maria, who had inherited her family's farm, and together they had six children. They had five boys and one girl, and they built a life of success and a life of happiness in their home country. At the close of the Cuban Revolution, this is around 1958, Fidel Castro takes over the country. He begins the country's conversion into communism, which would come to completion by 1965. Eventually, every single household was visited by the government annually to give an inventory and a census, not just of the people, but of every item in the home. So if even a plate was unaccounted for, there would be dramatic repercussions because they had to prove to the government that not only had nothing been stolen, but even worse, that no one had escaped. So at the onset of communism, all of the land now belongs to the government, and Gilberto and Rosa Maria lost not only their family farm, but everything that they had built up materially. So soon, a draft was ordered, and any boy under the age of 15 years old was commissioned into the Cuban military. At this point, Gilberto and Rosa's oldest son was 14 years old, and he was within one year of being drafted into the Cuban military. So they had no choice as parents but to send them to the United States as their only option of refuge. So, over the next year, they send their boys, one by one, to escape Cuba to America at the will of the parents. And miraculously, all four of their eldest boys get placed into the same foster care home in San Antonio. But then it took four more years for Gilberto, Rosa Maria, and their younger two children to be able to escape to Cuba themselves. So they fled from Cuba to Mexico. They make it from Mexico to Miami, where all the Cubans are. They work three jobs in various factories, raising money, gaining stability, and proving their merit as parents to be able to reclaim their own children from the system. And after two years of being in the United States, they were finally able to reunite with their family, finally all together again. Hilberto and Rosa Maria lost everything they had, 
but they did everything in their power not to be victims of their circumstances, choosing instead to find a way towards what was ultimately best for their family. And in 1978, they became citizens of the United States. So when I think about someone who I'd want to share a dinner table with, when I think about someone whose photo would line my personal hall of fame, when I think about the people who I would want to hear the stories from, the people who I want to learn experiences from, really grow from their challenges, I would have to have my grandfather, my abuelo, Gilberto, at the table. I think about the story of their coming to America, the motivation, the drive that they had, the tenacity, the fight, the faith that he would bring his family to safety and back together again. I called my mom this week to ask her about her father and her mother and the experience that they all had coming to the United States as they journey here to find a better life. Because I think it's important that we know where we come from. I think it's important that the people in our ancestral tree have an integral part in our own story. I'm only who I am because of the people who came before me. And that's true of anyone else in this room. So at church, over the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to do a study of some of the pivotal figures from the Old Testament. We're finding more and more often, if you're to ask just a random believer, you know, tell me the story of fill-in-the-blank, an Old Testament character. They wouldn't know much about that person. And what's happened is, as time has passed on, We've allowed the relevance of some of these Old Testament characters to fade in our lives. But the Old Testament is filled with real people, just like my grandfather. It's filled with real realities. And to know them is to know your lineage. So these stories make up the first chapter of your own story. Hebrews 11 is kind of an entry point to some of the most notable people in the Old Testament. It's often called the Hall of Faith, hence the title. And it's a wonderful study that gets us back into the Old Testament to see people who were particularly noted for the way that they lived faithfully. In Hebrews 11, you find a very long list of people. Some of them are as memorable as you know, Abraham and Moses. Some of them are more obscure, like Barak and Jephthah, and they're all notable, not because they're perfect people, not because they exemplify a perfectly godly and holy experience, but instead because of the way that they allowed God's faithfulness to be mirrored in their current faith. So together, we want to get to know these pivotal characters of our spiritual ancestry. We want to know whose photos line our Christian Hall of Faith. And so this is the new series. Each week what we're going to do is we're going to look at a spiritual grandparent one by one and see how God works through them to do incredible things. We're going to use Hebrews 11 as the framework, really the family tree that we work from. This morning, I want to set the table for these character studies. So the the plan was for me to take the first guy, but I just, you know, didn't want to. So... uh, (laughs) So instead, so what I want is I want to set the table before we, before we get into the meal next week. I want to, I think it's important that before we dig into the specific who questions, I think it's important that we establish the answer to the why question first. Why these people? 
Why these stories? And so to do so, we have to go backwards. There's a backstory with every story. There's always a prequel, um, any way to make more money. So let me start with one giant hurdle to jump over, and that's that when you study Hebrews, we don't actually know who the author of Hebrews is with 100% certainty. So there's a lot of people who tell you that they know. There's a lot of people that have a lot of really great you know, reasons to say who they think authored the book of Hebrews. Truthfully, we just don't know. Um, because they never come out and tell us. So you can make a great case for Paul. A lot of the things that are said in Hebrews really mimic and reflect other things that Paul has said. But you can make a great argument for Apollos, who is a contemporary of Paul. You can make an argument for Clement, for Barnabas, Timothy. I've even heard wonderful uh, arguments for Priscilla or Aquila. So I don't want to say that the authorship is inconsequential, but I want to be clear that when we go through this Hall of Faith chapter, We can't speak with 100% certainty on its authorship. What we do know is that the book of Hebrews was written by an incredibly gifted and educated scholar of their time. The author would have been so familiar with not just the current philosophies of their day, but with being incredibly well-versed in also Old Testament scholarship. So this was a really smart person who is writing the book of Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews has more Old Testament citations and quotes and references than any other book in the New Testament. And most of the references are from the first five books of the Bible, being the Pentateuch, or uh, in, in the Jewish faith, the Torah, and the Psalms. So the book of Hebrews is lofty. Like, it's not just something that you pick up and, you, and is an easy read. It's lofty, wonderful, theologically rich, but it's written in a difficult style on purpose. The book is being delivered and read to religious people who carry an incredible amount of religious baggage alongside their new pursuit of Christ. So many of them are Jewish believers who bring along with them a lot of Jewish baggage when they seek after their new life in Christ. They love Jesus, but they find themselves constantly fluctuating between seeking after him and seeking after their old ways that were rooted in the laws of Judaism. So these are people who know their scripture. They know the Old Testament well. We know that they know the Old Testament well because the author of Hebrews talks about the Old Testament constantly. They know the scriptures. They've lived their life in accordance to Judaism. So what happens then is they have a perfectly formulated plan of action for their new life in Jesus. But what they do is they mimic their old lawful pursuit of lawful perfection without operating from a heart that's actually seeking after Christ. They have really good intentions with really misplaced actions, which honestly and sadly is pretty relatable for me. I can't tell you how often... I find myself drifting away from Jesus while I'm actively working for him. Like while I'm doing good things, I get busy doing the Christian things without actually centering myself on Christ. And what I do is instead I operate from a place of good habits without allowing my heart to be continually transformed by Christ. And I think you could probably also relate to this. I think it's honestly pretty easy to fall into the routine of Christian living without being actually purposeful in our pursuit of Christ. We just kind of are accidental good people because we're used to it. So the author of Hebrews understands this. And he makes 
this large argument for the perfect priesthood of Jesus Christ. So the, the Jewish faith, it's, it's very much based on a, on a priestly structure. And they wanted to have this priest moment where they can go to the high priest and that would be the mediator between them and God. And the author of Hebrews wants them to know the priesthood was perfected in Jesus Christ. These new believers, they only had experience operating through a Jewish high priest. But Hebrews is written to tell them, and ultimately us, that Jesus was the ultimate redemption for humanity. What was partial and temporary in the office of the Jewish high priest is now forever instated in Jesus' fulfillment. And so, all of that to say that the story of Hebrews follows this, it follows this grand arc from the Old Testament into the future. It takes us into the background of our faith. It examines our mothers and our fathers who came before us, learning from their mistakes, ultimately understanding the legacy of their faith, and modeling ourselves forward in projection of what is to come through Jesus. And that's really the, the thesis of what Hebrews is all about. So early in the book, the author of Hebrews reminds the people that the generation of Jews, he reminds them the story of the generation of Jews who wandered around the wilderness, how their unfaithfulness then forfeited their standing with God. And he wants them to know, don't be like those guys. Those, those are the bad guys. Don't mimic your life after the ones who wandered away from God. So, then headed into the great Hall of Faith chapter in chapter 11, instead he takes a different approach. Instead of saying, don't be like these guys, now he's saying, align yourself instead with the people who have proven themselves to be faithful. But to read chapter 11, we've got to go backwards, so let's read in chapter 10, verses 32 through 35. The author says this, Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. There's a reassurance to these people that they don't belong to those who reject Christ. But rather, instead, they belong to the company of those who were obedient to endure. And there's this element of endurance to the faith that now the author is going to continuously bring up. That it's important that no matter what comes, no matter what obstacles face you, no matter what your circumstances look like, whether they're good or mundane or terrible, there's an endurance to your faith if it's truly faith. So then in chapter 10, verse 36, he says, You need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. I've mentioned like 15 times now. These people know the Old Testament. So then verses 37 and 38 are now a callback to Old Testament writings. What, what the author does, he takes two different uh, verses and kind of Frankensteins them together and uh, makes them into one thing. So he's actually quoting from Isaiah 26, 21, that the Lord is coming from his place. And Habakkuk 2, verses 3 through 4, it says, Though it delays, wait for it since it will certainly come and not be late. The righteous one will live by faith. So again, remember, the people who are reading these, the audience that's hearing these words, 
The point of referencing them is to prove once again that Jesus is now a fulfillment of the Old Testament. You don't have to live according to those laws anymore. All that to say, verse 37 says this, For yet in a very little while, remember now it's a quote from Isaiah, the coming one will come, now Habakkuk, and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. Jesus will return in righteousness. So then is the believer's responsibility to respond in a saving faith. Verse 39 says, But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. He's saying, you don't belong to the people who reject God. You belong to something much bigger. You have a legacy an ancestry, a family tree filled with those who have chosen to endure for the purpose of their faith. And our faith then is rooted in his faithfulness. We don't have faith in God blindly. We have faith in God because he's proven himself to be faithful. So then later in chapter 12, we're even reminded that Jesus endured, Jesus endured all the way to the cross. He's proven himself faithful, and he's proven himself faithful in the way that he has endured in his faithfulness. We're not choosing to have a faith rooted in our own merits, but rather because Jesus has already put in the work for us. So the first message then to receive is this. To live by faith is to live with endurance. We're called to reject the taunts the afflictions, the struggles that come as standard issue to the believer. We're called to just reject all of that. Instead, we choose to endure through it with confidence because we understand that God's will is not for our destruction, but instead it is for us to remain faith-filled and faithful. Faith isn't just like an incantation of prayer. It's not just a, a quick nod upward toward heaven and then all the troubles disappear. No, faith is enduring regardless of circumstance. Faith is persistence despite the struggles or persecution, despite the doubts or the failures or any flaw that you may have. Faith is not wishful thinking like, oh, I hope my children sleep in their beds tonight. That's not what faith is. Faith is not a hope and faith is not a wish. Faith is grounded in the reality of what Christ has already done. So then, to quote 35, don't throw away your confidence. Not confidence in your own merit or your own performance, but confidence in what has already been done for you. Don't throw that away. You have reason, great reason, for great faith. And that gives us incredible motivation then to endure in every circumstance. Which then leads us straight into our thesis statement. This is the big faith definition verse of the Bible. This is the chapter we're going to be really leaning into for the series. So as we go into chapter 11, let's read verse 1 together. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Look around your community. What do you see? What kind of impression does the world around you give? I think about just yesterday, members of a Jewish synagogue 10 miles to the east of us were held hostage in their place of worship. What, what is the state of our world? 
I'm thinking about the incredible number of people in our own community here at Cornerstone who are currently fighting illness. We, we just look at our present state of affairs and it's easy to grieve the broken nature of mankind, to see the current situation and just mourn the suffering that surrounds us. And it's natural then to hope for something better. We long for the end of the story when creation is restored up to its godly purpose and the world is finally reunited with its eternal king. That future longing is hope. But choosing to recognize God's present will at hand, his perfect faithfulness regardless of our circumstances and then making that future hope into our current reality, that is faith. You might recall, if you, if you grew up on other translations of the Bible, you might remember that the reading here, instead of, can we go back to verse 1? Instead of it saying, now faith is the reality, you might remember it said um, assurance or substance. There, there's a lot of different words that, that are used here. Assurance, reality, confidence, those are all really great translations. But it's a notoriously complex Greek word that doesn't sound like what it looks like. It's called a hypostasis. Hypostasis. And I wish that it wasn't. Uh, it should be hypo, but you know, I'm not Greek, so I can't, I can't make that. Um, but anyway, hypostasis is actually for, it's a compound Greek word. And it means either by or under and firmly established. So being placed under or being set under as a foundation is set under. And not only that, the way that a foundation is, oh, look at this, with, the way that a foundation is firm, the way that something actually has real substance, though like an actual being, it can mean the substantial quality, the nature of a person or a thing. It can mean the steadfastness of mind, the firmness, the courage, the resolution, it's confidence, it's firm trust, it is assurance. That's just one giantly complex word that we're going to use and translate over here to faith is the reality. But it's so much deeper than that. We see hypostasis appearing three other times in the book of Hebrews. The first time is chapter 1, verse 3. So in the opening lines of this book, we see the word hypostasis. It says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. His nature being hypostasis. The same thing that our faith is. The exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down then at the righty, right hand of the majesty on high. So here, we're looking at this word, meaning Jesus' very nature. The actual, existent, substantial version of God's reality and being is hypostasis. You want to understand the actual reality of God, you look to Jesus and you see it. If you want to know his character as he's revealed himself in reality, you look to Jesus. So then in chapter 3, verse 14, the same term for the actual nature of God, the expression of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature being Jesus Christ, if you then look in 3.14, the same term is then flipped around and instead of being about Jesus, now it is about the object of our confidence. It says, for we have now become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality, the hypostasis that we had at the start. So now what the author is saying is not only 
is Jesus Christ himself, the firm foundation on which everything stands. That same firm foundation is your reality now. When you read, we hold firmly to the end, the reality that we had at the start, he's saying, hold firmly to the only one who gives you reason for reality. Hold firmly to Jesus Christ himself because this hypostasis nature is the exact expression of who God is. And then all the way in chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The proof of what is not seen. If you want to know what faith is, faith is hypostasis. It is the assurance that we find in Jesus himself because his very nature is hypostasis. And our current assurance and our complete faith is only meaningful and it's only substantial because the reality of our situation is rooted in the very nature of who Jesus Christ is. And we're just along for the ride. We are participants in Christ because of this reality. The reality being Jesus Christ himself. There's no need for an additional mediator when we have Jesus as our high priest. Jesus is the reality of who God is. Jesus is the actual reality and expression that God wanted you to know about himself. And that same reality is the source then of our assurance, our confidence, and ultimately our faith. And what we tend to do then is we get it mixed up and we tend to see faith is a like a fingers crossed ordeal like it's the only thing that's getting us through this difficulty like i'll just have faith you'll get through this or i'm just surviving on faith right now it's as if our faith is only emphasized in future events that's not faith that's hope you hope things get better faith is the present reality of our hope because jesus is that same living reality right now it is your assurance, and if your confidence isn't rooted in the right now, but instead is only based out of the hope of what to come, then that isn't true faith. Because faith is present. Faith is right now. Our faith is a current reality because the object of our faith is very real. Believe God now, in the present. If you're a child of God, you have the opportunity, and not just the opportunity, but the privilege to live a faith-filled life because you live a life as a participant in Christ. Faith isn't our lifeline. Faith is our life. It is our reality. It's our assurance that regardless of circumstances, no matter what you hope for in the future, no matter what lies ahead, our current and forever reality is that we are firmly held in the arms of our faithful Father. So then verse 2 says this, For by this, this reality, this faith-filled reality, for by this our ancestors were approved. Or another way to say that is one God's approval. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. So as we venture forward in the weeks ahead to study and to remember the ancestors of our faith, keep in mind that they received God's stamp of approval. But not, not by their closely held perfection, like the Jews really wanted it to be. Most of the people listed in chapter 11 are like really tragically flawed. They weren't model citizens of perfection. 
but rather they remained faithful to stand in their pursuit of God. If you glance through about like the next 30 or 40 verses, you'll find Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, and the author makes the point to tell you that time is too short to tell you all the people who deserve a place in the hall of faith. These are people who at times proved their vulnerabilities and showed their weaknesses, but they all had one thing in common, and that's in verse 39 and 40. All of these were approved through their faith. They didn't receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, so that they would not be made perfect without us. What they share is that their faith persisted. They remained loyal to the promises of God. They stood firm in their belief, and they maintained that belief steadfastly. Despite the failures of themselves and those around them, they persevered in the present by faith, in anticipation then of a future reward by hope. Abraham, think about Abraham. He left his present circumstances in search of the promised land. His current operations were by faith, in anticipation of the future, by hope. Joseph, at the end of his life, looks forward towards the exodus, which he dies before that happens. His current reality was one of faith looking forward to hope. Moses leaves his treasure in Egypt in pursuit of God's future instead. His current reality, the one right now who's living out of faith with hopeful promise of the future. Hebrews 11 lists countless people. And I know it's countless because a lot of them are just lumped up in general statements. Like these people were ripped in half and these people were murdered and these people were cast aside and exiled. And it it goes into great detail of all of the people who lived a life with a present reality of faith. Hebrews 11 lists countless people who are heroes. Not because they received their reward in the present, but because they lived in the present with the same boldness as they would when the reward would come. And that is faith. Faith is not momentary, but instead it's the current perseverance that endures and stands firm. As though your hope has already been fulfilled. Because it has. So, as we look back, as we chronicle our family of faith. It's important that we recognize our place within this community. These people lived faith-filled lives with the promise of what was to come, and this is the same promise that gives our faith purpose. We have the fulfillment of faith in Jesus. We also have the future of faith in eternity. So what we do is then we look ahead knowing that he wins, knowing that our steadfastness and that our faithfulness is preemptively results-driven. Earlier I mentioned we want, we want to know who the who is of Hebrews 11, but first we want to answer the why. The answer is, is simple. It's because our faithfulness anticipates his victory. We are faithful because we already know that it's grounded in the reality of his victory. The story of believers in past times is still our story today. Just as they looked forward in, toward the victory of their Savior, we do the same. We will read their stories together 
over the next several weeks. We will learn about their struggles. We will see what motivated them. We will see that their faithfulness will always point toward a victorious end that they believed was coming, and we believe it too. After it talks about all the people, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, these are very popular verses. I'm sure many of you heard them. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, since your family tree of faith is so big, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what do we do with that? We, quote, lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. It's such a, a quite, quite a statement. The big to-do on our list is just a casual command to lay aside every hindrance and every ensnaring sin that affects us. It's kind of a, a big ask. But this is a matter of whether or not you will choose to remain faithful in your pursuit of holiness. The big so what answer that he gives is, if you want to be a part of this family, if you want to endure, if you want to stand firm, if you want to look forward with anticipation of Christ's victory, then what you need to do now is lay aside every hindrance and every sin that ensnares you. It's a matter of whether or not you'll choose to remain faithful in your pursuit of holiness. If we truly believe that Jesus has been faithful enough to deserve our faith, then we should be faithful to pursue him in return. So then how do we look forward in faith? How do we faithfully pursue holiness? First John 1 gives two options of how to respond. One of them is terrible. You don't want to do the first one. First John 1, 8 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The first option is to deny that you have any sin at all. Pretend that you're just this Christian superhero. Ignore the tenets of the faith. Neglect the relationship that Jesus freely offers to you. Suppress Holy Spirit's direction in your decision making and speak through your actions that you have no sin. It's the first option. The problem with this option is that you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. If you want that. The second option then is if you want to push forward in faithfulness with God. If you want to live a life that looks ahead toward the perfection of your faith in eternity, then what you need to do is be a person who makes confession and repentance a natural rhythm within your own personal ethics. The only way to truly lean into Jesus' faithful righteousness for you is to confess your sins, to repent from them, and to move forward. And then you confess your sins, and you repent of them, and you move forward. And then you confess your sins, and you repent from them, and you move forward. And what happens is the faithfulness of Christ's forgiveness brings you a deeper understanding of what living in faith truly looks like. If you want to look holier, if you want to really 
get a little bit of Jesus' righteousness to, to brush off on you, then you need to come to terms with your own unrighteousness. If you really want to be faithful to the pursuit of holiness, you have to recognize how unholy you are. And you need to confess and repent and move forward. And confess and repent and move forward. Because if we don't, then we are acting as if we have no sin at all. And the truth is not within us. We deceive ourselves. Which is really kind of harsh language because I think, let's just make a we statement. Let's all just agree together collectively that we're not good at repentance. We're just not. Because we want to be self-sufficient. We want to believe that, you know, we're doing a pretty good job. Right? I mean, even at the beginning, I said, like, I'm pretty good at falling into the habit of doing pretty good things. And what happens is then, I begin acting as though I have no sin. And that I am not in need of confession or repentance. But First John makes it very clear. If you want to see the faithfulness and righteousness of God, you need to make confession of your sins a natural rhythm in your own personal ethics. The Hall of Faith isn't an Avengers movie. <laughs> These aren't superheroes with powers that make them extraordinary. These are real people with real struggles and actual weaknesses and really perpetual moral failures. But they're real people who believed with endurance, steadfastness, and long-term vision in spite of their circumstances. And you have the same moment of choice. The verse says, let us then run with endurance the race that lies before us. You are tasked with your own story of the faith. Or rather, you have an incredible honor of being part of God's story and live out his story as one of his supporting characters. You have a particular race to run that is specific to your circumstances. You have the opportunity to join in with a legacy of faith-filled people and use their examples as motivators to push forward into a confidence and an assurance that you belong to the reality of faith himself. So when I think about my grandfather, I think about the story of him coming to America, I, I live with a different sense of confidence in my present reality because I've seen the example of those who have gone before me. Being a first-generation American, I have a particular vantage point that informs my perspective. And in our faith, we have a particular vantage point because we have learned from our spiritual parents and our grandparents. We have seen their example of faithfulness and we have choosing now to allow the current reality of who God is to become our standard mode of operation. So therefore, if we're to gain anything in the weeks ahead, as we study these characters, if we're to gain anything... It should be the encouragement and the motivation that our faith comes from a long lineage of people who chose to remain faithful. But so much more than that, Jesus is both the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And his faithfulness was proven to us in his endurance, in his steadfastness, and in his eternal place ahead at the right hand of the Father. We have faith because he has been faithful to us. We then have the opportunity to be faithful in return. And that's a challenge for you today. Would you stand?
Heads are, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We just have a real opportunity in these next few weeks to internalize our circumstances and to ask ourselves, am I allowing this present reality of mine to mold me into being a faith-filled person? I know there's, there's incredible situations represented here, represented with our church body online, at the homes of our people here and across the world. People are dealing with tremendous difficulties right now. Are you choosing to endure in faith? So many of us are caught up in who our culture tells us to be. I think we all kind of struggle with a variant of an identity crisis, of who you are at your core. And it's really easy to get caught up in the lies that surround us. Are you choosing to stand firm in faith? Are you choosing to live a faith-filled life because God has been faithful to you? So many of us are caught up in the immediacy of our issues that we forget there's a much bigger picture at play in our lives. Are you choosing to look ahead in faith? Maybe you realize that you don't seek out opportunities for regular confession and regular repentance. Maybe that's not a routine that comes naturally to you. Allow that to begin today. Truly confess and repent your sins and allow the faithful forgiveness of Jesus to draw you closer to him. It's incredible how the routine of repentance strengthens your faith. Maybe you've never confessed your sins. Maybe the idea of having a long lineage in the faith is appealing to you. Maybe you want to know what it means to find faith in the perfect reality of who Jesus is. If that's you and you want a no-pressure way to learn more, I'll have some of our leadership here on, on the front. And after the service, I want you to come forward and ask them. Talk to them. Let them counsel you and show you how incredible a faithful life for Christ can be. Let's pray together. God, we are forever thankful for your faithfulness toward us. You have proven yourself time and time and time again. You have endured. So God, is our statement, it's our resolve then to endure in the faith. We choose to remain steadfast in our pursuit of who you are. We choose to look ahead toward an eternity with you. You continue to show us your presence. And we so desperately want to be participants in that. We love you. This is all in Jesus' name that we pray.